it felt bad to step away from the trauma because like on the south side of why? chicago i mean we why? were saving. Why? why you feel bad about that you know it's that it's that we're saving lives like every day i go into work young brothers that are coming in paralyzed shot up they get to you know wake up and look at me taking care of them and, and, and that was something special that the way it makes you feel like you're out there serving the community that was really hard to step away from that pool that you talked about that's real and i think that i definitely went through something similar and there was this decision that i had to make did i want to continue at a level one trauma, gunshot yeah. wounds, stab wounds, car accidents. Is it best for me to affect the community in that way? And am I selling out if I go into like a community-based trauma program? When I did a medical mission trip, I started realizing that there's just other ways in which I can affect life. This episode is brought to you by Set for Life Insurance. Listen, docs, one of the first steps we took to pay off our student loan debt was realizing we paid way too much for our disability insurance. That all changed when we found Set for Life Insurance. They helped us with a customized insurance policy that met our needs and most of all, budget. To learn more, check out setforlifeinsurance.com. What's good, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Docs Outside the Box. I am your host, Dr. Nee. As always, I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Dr. Orney. Is that the Haitian? Yeah, that's the Haitian way. <laughs> now, when you say that, is that with a W or? No, Orney. Again? Orni. Did you roll your R's on no, that? No, I didn't roll it on my tongue. I rolled it in the back of my throat. Orni. 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 Okay. All right. Well, that's yeah. the Haitian way of saying your name. Okay. <laughs> well, it's right. really the French name, the French way. Mm, okay. I see. Yeah. I see. I Haitian see. way is Rini. <laughs> okay. So, which one do you prefer? The, the what what my parents called me because that's my name. So is that the Creole way that they call you? Or the uh, French no, way? they gave me the French version. Uh, okay, All you right. know they has a diddy. Yeah, they are. I guess so. <laughs> Your parents are cool. And happy birthday to Grandpa Voni. Uh, most recently, his birthday. What a couple days ago, yep. his birthday. Uh, he turned to eighty-one. So the shout big out, eight-one. Happy birthday Woo-hoo. to him. And stuff. So he came with us to Ghana. Had an amazing time. Yep. Now he wants to stay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I don't know if you can get your medical care out here in Ghana and the United States. You have to fly back and forth, but but it was it was good to. I wasn't able to make it because I was studying for boards and stuff. But I was yeah, happy to see that birthday party. And y'all like, did a nice celebration yeah. for him and. Yeah. Um, that just kind of capped off the weekend because there's a lot of things to be excited about. Um, very quickly, I just want to let y'all know what I'm excited about. So wh- by the time this episode comes out, this is the last week. and I, I don't know when this episode is coming out, but basically we're in the first week of September. Basically, kids are in school. College football has started. I'm excited. I'm not a big football person like NFL or anything like that, but college football I'm really in- excited about because wherever you go, whatever team that you're cheering for, you can't stop but pay attention to Deion Sanders. You got a problem? Mm. So Deion Sanders, his team now, as we are recording this, they are 2-0. and They just beat their second-ranked team, which is Nebraska. And obviously all the swag, all of the confidence, all of the things that we saw that he had in his career – as well as at Jackson State, and then him leaving, all of that stuff carried with him to Colorado. And mm-hmm. they're just, you know, there's a lot of expectations on this year because last year they went one and eleven, and this year already they're two and zero. They're ranked in the nation, so it's a it's a big deal. Mm. But for me, I'm just like, well, you know, obviously with him having all the success, it's just a timer as to when he's going to go to the next big thing. So <laughs> right, right. I, I only give him about two years, and I think he's gone. You think two years? Yeah, I think two years. He'll either go to another college or he might end up going to the NFL but I doubt he'll go to the NFL this early you think so yeah I think it's just different like so whenever you have someone like him right he's Mm -hmm. almost like a disruptor right his personality his swag his ability to motivate people I don't give a damn what they say you best believe we coming and guess what He's a big time disruptor. He's very different than the normal traditional coach that comes into NCAA's. Mm-hmm. Then you throw on top of that the whole dynamic with coach, excuse me, with athletes not getting paid, athletes kind of just feeling like they're not in control of their destiny. Mm-hmm. You throw that in there, it just his situation highlights all of the issues that are occurring in college sports mm-hmm. in good ways and in bad ways. In good ways, yeah, obviously you're seeing 
you know, someone who's had a lot of success in the NFL. Obviously, he's African-American. He d- he's doing things that you see are very non-traditional. It's very exciting. Right. But also at the same time, he's no different than any other coach. It's just that he has more swagger than other coaches. His ability to recruit is a lot more. He, he has that, that ability to motivate people more so than, you know, a regular coach. But there is no difference between his goals of him trying to coach and trying to win and trying to make money eventually in comparison, <laughs> in comparison to, to anybody else and anybody stuff. So else. I, th- I just think it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays off, not only with this year as well as for next year. But I do think if he went to the NFL, he would have a big-time struggle, mainly because now he's, he's motivating kids who don't have money, kids mm-hmm. who don't have a choice but to go through the system in order to make it to the NFL. Right. This is their only option. When you go to the NFL, you're dealing with grown men. They're making multiples, exponential amount of how much you're making as a head coach. Mm-hmm. Are they going to listen to you? Particularly depending on what the organization structure is, him being the head coach, he more than likely is not the final say as mm-hmm. to what's going to happen. So if a coach disagrees with the head, excuse me, if a player disagrees with the head coach, mm-hmm. a lot of times in the NFL or in professional sports, because that player makes so much money, he can just bypass the head coach mm-hmm. and talk to like a general manager, manager. or even talk to an owner. Right. How's that going to play in this whole scheme of things? So mm-hmm. that's that's something that I think is really interesting if he goes NFL or if he goes, yeah, you know, to another college mm-hmm. team. And go ahead. What are you going to? I say? was going to ask, like, do you see, do you see a similar dynamic in medicine? Not necessarily the bypassing and things like that, but like the going from one place to another, the relationship, you know, of the. I guess the coach and the uh, and the players versus like let's no. say residents. I'll just, I'll just get to it. No, no, nothing like that. No, I, I think the only thing that I could say maybe no. Nah, I, I think if medicine is so, um, it's still behind everybody else. All mm-hmm. the other industries, college football, uh, whatever industry you can think of. So you think nobody medicine. in medicine could like be that much of a disruptor that they would actually change the game, if you will. No, mm. no. I think certain situations like overall situations like COVID can occur and it can make sure like it can make it so that you don't need to have a step three examination anymore. Right? OK, because okay. you can't get people to come together in a, in a large situation. In the, right. Right. So you get rid of that. I think that you can have people who can mobilize other people maybe to mm-hmm. kind of. Unless you can get a whole bunch of different residents to strike and say they're not going to work. I don't think that anybody individually can come and make a change to the system. I don't think so at all. Yeah. Well, I think that's uh, that's really interesting because, you know, like you said, I've seen a lot. You know, I don't really follow football at all, college or professional, but I've seen a lot of posts about Deion Sanders and things like that. And so I was kind of thinking along the same lines as you, like, man. Is anybody in medicine, like, could somebody in medicine come in and just be like, you know, here's the new standard. Here's the new thing. Here's the way that we're, you know, I'm going to do it this way and that's going to set the standard for it. I agree with you. Yeah. I don't think that anybody. Well, the other thing, too, is I think the, the public that. would push back on someone who is so different than the rest of the other doctors. Mm-hmm. That would make people very uncomfortable. Yeah. I.e., this person is so different than the way how everybody else does it. Am I going to get the standard of care right. with this person? That would always be a concern. Yeah. So I think that, you know, just in general, I think people prefer their pilots and they prefer their doctors not to be someone who's out in the front all braggadocious and so forth, mm-hmm. except in certain cases. But I do think that in general, the public likes... Their doctors to run fall of the back. bill, run of the bill, boring fall, you know, now, chicken parm. Now it's different with social media, <laughs> right? Like doctors who are on social media and who are doing, you know, their thing. Yeah, we, you know, they enjoy it. They find it fun because it gives them a, it gives the public a window into, you know, what their daily life is and so forth. I think the public enjoys it, but I actually think that in within medicine we actually get pushed back from that. There is still like, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a little looser now but like medicine was I think a little bit more tight knit on why do you have to be on social media why do you have to show people you know what you're doing why do you have to you know x y and z as a doctor there was a time when you know as a as a doctor it was not it was frowned upon for you to be on social media you know touting or showing or whatever like just being a doctor 
You know, and I'm talking about within the industry. I think yeah, patients love it. I, I agree. I but think, I, I think, I think times that... have changed, but times have changed very slowly. Yeah. And what does time change mean relatively? Like, are we having a huge monumental shift? No. I right. think that just because you have a lot more doctors on social media doesn't mean that, mm-hmm. you know, you have a major, major shift that's going on and stuff. So, listen, before we get into our next topic, let's go ahead and take a break. We will be right back. Hold up. Before we continue to all my day ones and you know each and every one of you who you are. Thank you for rolling with the show from Jump and to the new listeners. Welcome. What's good? Where y'all been? I want y'all to stay a while. All right. So look, I'm trying to build a community here and I need your help. So with whatever app you're listening to this show right now, I want you to click the subscribe button. Then I want you to go over to Apple Podcasts and I want you to rate and review the show. And you may be asking, how does this help? The way how it helps is by helping the show to grow and rise up in the rankings so that it's easier for new people to discover the show. Now, what's in it for you is at least once a week, I'm going to be going through these reviews. I'm going to pick a lucky reviewer and I'm going to give that person an opportunity to have a 15 minute session with me where we could talk about anything from personal finance, getting your money right to just shooting the you know what about the show. So listen, remember, all I need you to do is subscribe and then rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. Let's get on with the episode. Peace. All right, y'all, we are back. Yeah, so moving off of the Deion Sanders thing, all of that stuff is really interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't see any similarities in medicine. I don't think there's one person who's that charismatic who can come in and change things. But um, but yeah, listen, the other person that I want to shout out to is Coco Goff. Okay. Right? So Coco, Coco Goff, she just won the U.S. Open. 19 oh, year old, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. 19-year-old, just won the U.S. Open. Yeah. I don't watch tennis as much as I used to, mainly because Serena's just not in, in it anymore. And right. Talk about someone who's transformative. Talk about someone who's electric, someone who you just can't stop watching and so forth. Yeah. Coco is... Serena um, used to be your girl. Yeah, I really liked Serena when she first came out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll save that girl. for another episode. <laughs> I had a little I had a little crush on her. You stuff. did. You have big crush on yeah. Serena. Yeah. <laughs> the med school days. <laughs> <laughs> but that's even before med school, I think. Well, she was 98. That, that's when I met you. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I remember in med school you had a big crush on Serena. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, times have changed. Taste, <laughs> tastes have changed. You tastes know? have changed. Yeah. Okay. Well, with Coco Golf, let's see. <laughs> Coco Golf. So th- the thing that I find really interesting about this is I don't know if you've seen on Instagram or on social social media. They mm-hmm. sh- there's videos of her at the U.S. Open like 11 years ago, mm-hmm. like in 2012, and she's like dancing in the stands, and you can see her back is to where everybody's playing and then they fast forward to now mm. and she's won, you know, oh, and it's okay, just, okay. I just think that that's really cool that's because, amazing, yeah. you know, you talk about something that you want something so bad. Like, for example, you want to be a doctor so bad and mm-hmm. you can see it, but it's not there, right? right? Like you're shadowing somebody who's a physician or you're getting advice from someone who's a physician yeah. or you're talking to a medical student, you're getting a mentor and so yeah. forth and you want it so bad. Yeah. And this literally is like fast forwarding 11 years for yourself. Yeah. Right? The but reels of your life. I think that that's, I don't know, those type of things are really yeah. amazing. Now, obviously, she's one in a million in terms of like her talent. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's anyway. But tennis is is extremely competitive. Maybe. And medicine is only what 1% of people who make it anyway. So I just think that, you know, if you're a medical student or even before that, if you're a pre-med student or even before that, if you're someone who just wants to be a doctor, like you can do it. Just, you know, surround yourself with the right people. Make sure you are surrounding yourself with positive people who can give you some constructive criticism Mm -hmm. on things that you struggle with, but as well as things that you do really good with Mm -hmm. um, and never give up, you know, dance in the stands. What's your biggest advice for someone who's in maybe not even a pre-med, but or even a pre-med who's like, man, I just want to get there. But I got all this like negative people are telling me that I can't do it. So. I was listening to some other podcast the other day and um, there was something that the person said that really stood out. I can't remember which podcast it was, but they said, you know, the only people who ever make it to their goals are people. Actually, it was 
whatever. Anyway, the only people <laughs> she's like, she, the only people that ever actually make it to their goals are the people who don't stop. Correct. That's it. Like you just have to keep going. Like if you stop, then the goal stops. If you don't stop, you'll make it. Like that's my biggest thing. Like just keep going. And then contact you. And contact me. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> and contact me. But yeah, that that's it. You know, like whoever quit and made it. Yeah, I, I get. It. <laughs> right? I always, I always like when you describe people who are struggling and maybe they have failed a test or a board examination mm-hmm. or they got some type of negative information and now they're like, should I keep going? Right. I don't know which direction to make. And they're spending so much time not moving forward. But you always say it, whatever you decide to do or whatever is going on, like time is still going on. Right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. Like even though you even through your decisiveness, indecisiveness, excuse me, right now, time is still ticking. Yep. So you might as well just keep moving forward. Exactly. Right. You may not the have time all the will pass. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I the like time that. will pass. You know, it's whether or not, you know, if it's going to be four years, then the question is, OK, that's fine. But what are you where are you going to be in four years? Yeah, because four years is going to come and go. Yeah, so make yeah. sure you get, make sure you medical student or sorry, I keep saying medical student, but make sure you pre meds. You reach out to us. Let Doctor Renee know if you need some help. She can give you some advice. She obviously has her medic app right here. You can click on that right there, or use your QR code. Should be able to see it on the screen. No, you can just go to the app store. Remember? That's true. Tell them where to find it. <laughs> app store, Google Play. Look at you. Plug in medic. What's up with you today? I'm giving you props. What? I'm giving you props today. But listen, let's <laughs> let's let's change directions real quick. I want you to take a look at this, and I want to mm-hmm. get your thoughts on that. So this is a post from Doctor Hussein. She is a trauma surgeon as well as a mother of six, yeah. and it actually is really pointed into the interview that we're going to be leading into with Doctor Stephen Bradley. Mm-hmm. So I want you to take a listen to this. Okay. Stop trying to fit into your workplace. Hi, I'm Dr. Kyle Hussein, full-time trauma surgeon and mom of six. One thing that navigating the world of surgery as a black hijabi Muslim woman and mother taught me is that fitting in means compromising your values and who you are. They tell you that's what you have to do to succeed. The truth is none of that is necessary. You can maintain your values and your authenticity and thrive in your work. To learn more about thriving in your career as your authentic self. So we're not trying to plug we're not trying to plug all that other stuff at the end but <laughs> later on she you know if she wants to come on the show we can talk about that stuff but what did you think about what she said cuz i thought it was really interesting what she said about fitting in fitting in mm-hmm. right and are you losing yourself when you try to fit in thoughts so literally yesterday one of my mentees who's a resident wrote me a text message and she's looking to switch her OBGYN residency program to another program. And one of the Another things, specialty or just no, go, another OB So go from program. OB to another OB program. All right. And the one thing that she said that got to, that really got me thinking was she said something about fitting in. She's like, I just don't fit in here. Mm. And I hear that a lot. Yeah, Yeah. I don't fit in here. And, you know, she kind of referenced her seniors, you know, blah, 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 and things like that. And she's like looking to to switch. But, you know, a couple of things that I said to her was that, you know, one of the things that I learned a long time ago is that, you know, where you work has a lot to do. Well, less to. So where you work has less to do with what you're doing and more about who you work with, right? Do you have colleagues that you can work well with? You know, do you feel supported? Things like that, right? But the fitting in kind of plays a part in that. Correct. Right? The other thing, though, is that things change pretty rapidly in residency because my first year of residency, I didn't feel like I fit in at all, and I actually went to quit ended up staying and what I said to her was you may not you may not thrive you know or feel like you fit in when you are an intern but as you move up the ranks that actually might change you actually might bond better with your juniors than your seniors which is right. actually what happened to me and I think the reason <laughs> let your seniors go out to pasture basically yes. let them once they leave the program they're not coming back exactly but how you affect the program with your juniors behind you that exactly. makes a really big difference 
that is on key. That's on point. I love that. Exactly. That's a really good point. Because then you can set a new stage. Yeah. Right? You can set a new stage. So whereas for me, my seniors were like, oh, you can't go to the bathroom. You can't eat. You can't do this. You can't do that. You only have to work, work, work. Stay on the floor. I was like, I would... I will never do that to my juniors. And so that kind of changed the game for me. And it changed the relationship that I had with my juniors in comparison to the relationship I had with my seniors. So the way how I look at it is similar to that question that you asked about Deion Sanders. Like, Mm -hmm. is there going to be a transformative person who can come Mm -hmm. and change everything? And my answer initially is no. Right. Right. But I do think that you can have like small little micro changes in your program by being who you are. Like the overall healthcare system or your overall residency, for the most part, like the ebbs and flows, that's not going to change much. Mm -hmm. Right. But you have to be who you are. You have to stay who you are so that at the end of the day, you can always look at yourself in the mirror. That's the way I look at it. So for me, I will just say that the system is going to move on with you whether you're in it or you're not in it. <laughs> right. So you might as well just be who you are. You yeah. might as well be, just be who you is, right? <laughs> just be who I'm you is. be who I am. And just go from there because ultimately right. what the most important thing right now is that making sure that you pass your boards, you do well on your your uh, on your on on whatever test you got to take, you're taking care of patients, you're there on time, and you know you make people look good and that's it. Yeah. But how you dress, how, what you wear, the hair you do, all these different how things, speak, that has you, nothing yeah. to do with the situation. I think oftentimes we make it harder on ourselves mm. Mm-hmm. And granted, depending on which what type of background you come from, you may feel like you're a guest always. Yes. And you feel like, you know what, like as hard as it was for me to get in, it might be just as easy for me to get kicked out. So mm-hmm. let me just act appropriately. And that's a problem that I think a lot of people have, including me. That was an issue that I had when I went into residency. I was like, ah, you know, I'm the first DO resident. You know, you know, I got to make sure. All the chips on, on your shoulder. I got to make sure I'm on point. When I was in medical school and I got, I was like, ah, oh, you know, I'm just, you know, uh, maybe they just may find out find out who I really am and so forth. <laughs> Imposter. But you look back and you're just like, look, just be you and go through the things that you need to do. Take care of your boards pass your scores be there on time you know be cordial make sure you work in a team other than that everything else is you know it is who it is and stuff but before we we move on real quick in this interview i want to state something really quick because what she said is is that you lose a little bit of yourself right and i do think a lot of that has to do with burnout or does lead to burnout Mm -hmm. or possibly depression and it's not just me saying this so there's a medscape study that came out earlier this year and it's called physician burnout and depression report of 2023 i'm gonna gonna give you some stats nine thousand doctors were surveyed 53% said that they were burned out actually they did this study five years they did this study five years before and only 42% were burned out so 53% of doctors of these 9,000 said that they are burned out COVID 23% (laughs) COVID had a big part had a big part but not as big as you think it is Mm. 23% say that they are depressed Um, the most uh, the doctors that are most Burnt out are ER docs. I don't think that that's a surprise. Right. Um, second, well, that's 65%. So 65% of ER docs said that they are burnt out. 60% of internal medicine doctors say that they are burnt out. Mm, and then between men and women, who do you think are more burnt out, men or women? Women. Yeah. So women, 63% of women say that they are burnt out. Mm-hmm. Men, 46%. Yeah. And then the biggest contributor to being burnt out is too many bureaucratic tasks. 61% of docs say that click, click. it's the red click, stuff, click, click. the medical <laughs> EMR system, all of those different things contribute the most yeah. to their burnout. So no big shock right there. So I just wanted to get your opinion on that because I thought that that post was really timely, mm-hmm. very interesting, because sometimes you start to think like, the system is the same as it was in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. <laughs> Just because you saw that you wanted to do this off a of TV or maybe yeah. aspiring to do this off of a great mentor doesn't mean you know all the intricacies of getting through medicine. Yep. But the question is, is, should you necessarily change your complete who you are in order to survive? I say no. And right. I know that it, a lot of people will say, well, <laughs> Dr. Darko, you made it through. So obviously you can go back and say all those different things. Trust me. There are points, specific points in my career where I look back and I'm like... I would have done that differently. Mm-hmm. You know, I would not not like saying that I would have like yelled at somebody or an attending or anything right. like that. But I would have defended my stance a little bit more or I would have believed in myself a little bit more mm-hmm. instead of trying to, quote unquote, assimilate. Fit in. Fit, assimilate. So yeah. but anyway, that leads to actually the meat and potatoes of this episode. <laughs> it almost seems like we went through a whole episode right now. I know before we got <laughs> to the meat and potatoes. <laughs> but we got Dr. Stephen Bradley. He is host of the Black Doctors podcast, which is an amazing podcast. But 
it went on hiatus because he, in essence, almost went on hiatus. So he's in the military. He's an anesthesiologist by training. And he decided to go back to the University of Chicago and do a one-year fellowship in critical care. Mm -hmm. It's really great. It's an amazing experience. But I brought him on to really get his thoughts on a couple things. One, what's he doing with his career right now, now that he's out of the military and he's actually working as an anesthesiologist and critical care doc? Mm -hmm. What's the big change in his salary? And also, what did he negotiate? And after coming out of this, you will see that um, we're actually... Like, it's just amazing how, like, people can be on different wavelengths about what they should negotiate versus what they shouldn't. You know, mm. for me, it's always, you know, I always want to make sure that it's very easy to get into a contract mm -hmm. and it's also very easy to get, get out, out of a contract. Yes. Yes. I always want to know those terms. Um, I don't know why it's always big for me. Um, but in this episode, you'll see that that really wasn't that big of a deal for him. There were some other things. Mm. And then also he's going to give us an update on things that he's doing creatively, as well as what is up, what is next for the Black Doctors podcast. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Okay. All right, y'all. Without further ado, let's jump into this episode with Dr. Stephen Bradley. If you're looking for a podcast that moves the health conversation outside of the box, then I highly recommend Healthy Conversations the acclaimed podcast from CVS Health. Hosted by Dr. Daniel Kraft, the Harvard and Stanford-trained physician scientist, Healthy Conversations provides cutting-edge information about the forefront of medical practice. On each episode, Dr. Kraft sits down for one-on-one -on -one interviews with doctors and tech innovators who are transforming healthcare to address some of the most pressing issues. If you're looking for entrepreneurial inspiration, then I recommend their episode on how the NHS evolved to support physician entrepreneurs. This is where Dr. Kraft interviews Dr. Tony Young of England's National Health Service on medical innovation. Or listen to their recent conversation on neurodiversity with legendary animal behaviorist and autism advocate Temple Grandin. So look, don't miss out. Listen to Healthy Conversations from CVS Health. It's available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Link is in the show notes. Yo, what's good, everyone? I got Dr. Stephen Bradley here. Um, Dr. Stephen, welcome back to Docs Outside the Box. How you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. It's been a minute. A lot's changed, so, so glad to be back. Yeah, the last time we talked, you were still in the military. And I forget what part of the world or the country you were. I think you were in Virginia or something like that. Yeah, yeah, um, I was in Norfolk. Yeah, you were in Virginia, and you were considering doing a fellowship or getting ready to do a fellowship. Um, but talk to us. Where you at? What's going on right now? Exactly. Yeah, right now, you know, a lot's changed. So I did finish uh, my time in the military, so separated from the Navy a year ago, so in uh, 2022. And then I went back to the University of Chicago for my critical care medicine fellowship, finished that up, and now uh, just just working, took a job uh, down in Florida doing anesthesia and critical care. So why why go back to fellowship? Because I know inherently in anesthesia anyway, like you get critical care training. So why go back to resident, or excuse me, why go back to fellowship? My bad, I was about to step you down a little bit. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I did. I took that step down back from attending life to, to fellowship. Hey, and yeah, that, pay, it's a... <laughs> that pay is a big deal, as well as someone telling you what to do. But we're going to get into that in a second. But tell me, yeah. tell me why, 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 why you want to do all the, that? The reason was, you know, I went into anesthesia to do critical care medicine. As a medical student at Howard, mm. I was working with Dr. Saram, Dr. Wendy Green, um, and, and rotating through the surgical ICU at, at Howard, that's where I developed a love for critical care. I remember having a talk with Dr. Wendy Green during a trauma call about critical care medicine and how to get into the field. Because at that time, I was going to do uh, trauma surgery. I thought that was the only way in. And she explained, you know, there's pulmonary critical care medicine. There's anesthesia critical care. And yeah, the then ones. the love for... <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, you know, a little, little more chair time. Not on our feet quite as much. <laughs> um, so, so I went to anesthesia to ultimately do critical care medicine. And I had some delays because I, I took that military service commitment at the end of residency when people would normally be applying to fellowship. I had to reach out to the Navy, random people like I, I dug up an email address because once you join the military, they kind of like forget about you. And so I, I found a random person who was the, the detailer. I'm like, he sounds like a big deal. Let me ask him, can I do an ICU fellowship before I start my four year service obligation? And he was like, the first thing he said back was, uh, Use your proper name, rank, and title when addressing officers. I'm like, okay, that's weird. Uh, what is my 
rank and title. I don't even know. So he's like, oh, are you Lieutenant Bradley, yada, yada. So I emailed him back. He basically says, no, um, the military does not need critical care trained physicians. Um, just come on as a general anesthesiologist. So that delayed me for the four years. I still think it's really interesting that, you know, you got to have someone let you know if you can go and specialize or not. But um, that's the name of the game. You know, they pay for your, yeah. you know, they give you money and, and in return, they kind of have a little bit of a control while you're there. Um, so when it was time for you to go back, you got into critical care, it's time to go back and become, you know, a fellow again. Like you used to over the past four years being an attending, making attending decisions, like you are at the top of making the decision. Nobody's asking you any questions. You tell people what you want to do. What was it like going back, someone telling you what to do? <laughs> I know you was like, yo, shut the F up, man. Like, I already no, know how it, to go. What it, was it, actually, like? it, actually, it actually wasn't bad. Number one, you know, I was in the military, so I, there was some degree of like following orders and just doing some stuff that's absolutely ridiculous and asinine and frustrating, but you're just following orders. So that wasn't a big deal. And number two, you know, I'm learning a new specialty, even though, yeah, I did, you know, five, six months of, of ICU during residency, but yeah, I but was, you understand you know, vents, you know how to put in central lines, <laughs> like, you know how to put them to sleep. I mean, be honest, like let the people know. So they like, from what you do as an anesthesiologist to critical care, that's really not that big of a difference, right? Am I lying? Uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of overlap. But when you, when you get into the subspecialties, so rotating through the neuro ICU and right, seeing right. Like, that degree and then the trauma surgical ICU, like actually working with the surgeons, I was able to learn a lot, a lot of, of seeing how they deal with stuff, get more of the hands-on. SIMV on the <laughs> vent and stop drying out our patients. That's it. Those are the only three things you need to know. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Then the medical ICU, that was a whole that was a whole thing. Lasix. Um, too. <laughs> uh the, the oncology stuff is, is crazy in the ICU. Oh. Um mm-hmm. if you have the medical ICU patients, they love the lung stuff, the pulmonary fibrosis and all that, and then uh transplant stuff. So it it was very helpful. Now, following orders, like it wasn't I, I hedged my bets and went back to where I did residency. So going back to the University of Chicago, you know, most of my, you know, all of my crit care attendings were the same people that I worked with as a resident, a couple were like my, my, my classmates, you know, working with them. So it was, uh, I mean, a mutual respect, like nobody was talking down to me. They kind of understood, Hey, Steve's been in practice. Um, it was cool to see the general surgery residents cause they were like yeah. PGY ones and twos when I left. And now they're the big bad chiefs right. stomping around. I'm looking at them like, I knew you when you, when, you know, when you just got here. So See, but the same way that you're looking at them <laughs> is the same way that I'm sure you're looking at your, co- your colleagues or your, you know, the, the attendings who are critical care attendings. And you're like, dude, like you was my, co- you was my co-resident before, you know, like yeah. that's, that's got to be it a was, very interesting was, situation. Yeah. Honestly, very relaxing because as the attending, you're on the hook for all these decisions. And now I had a year where I'm like, all right. I'm, I'm going to step out of the driver's seat. I'm going to be a, the co-pilot and I'm going to see how you drive a ship. And like, yeah, I would do this this way or, or communication wise, I would do things differently. But it was actually very uh, liberating to not have that level of responsibility. So you got to be here. a backseat driver. Oh, yeah. It was, it was a good time. <laughs> All right. Real quick, real quick. Talk about the pay because that's got to be what, half your salary right there, what you used to, maybe even more? Um, barely. You in because- Chicago? Well, I was in the Navy, remember? So the Navy salary was like 120 grand a year as an anesthesiologist. That's what I started out at. My yeah, first six months a, then. But as a re- as a fellow, like you can't be making more than 50. Uh, no, it's like, like 70, 72. What? Bro, you've been out uh, for a minute. <laughs> Inflation, my guy. <laughs> that's, that's when you know I'm old. They're in the 70s now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, you saw wow. like, uh, I think Harvard... They just unionize. There's been a lot of pressure, right? Because like the uh, the young folks aren't putting up with these uh, these salaries anymore, and people are protesting at residencies or like organizing unions. And a matter of fact, like a couple couple months in, the the university just like gave us extra money. Like they're starting to to try to like at least uh, you know tell people, hey, chill out. We're going to pay you a little bit more. So yeah, it was like 70, 70 grand. So it wasn't a huge pay cut from my military mm. salary. Got you. But then, but that's also 70 in Chicago. So did you, I'm sure you could only be what, 15, 20 minutes away? Um, from the uh, hospital? Yeah. So that puts you what, like in Hyde Park, um, the South Side? Yeah, I, I, was in, uh, I was in the South Side, but you know, one, they didn't really have a callback requirement. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and two, well, my wife, I came back married, so we had a dual income, which was very helpful. And then the uh, GI Bill, I was actually able to use some of the GI Bill uh, to cover, they gave me like a housing stipend because I was a full-time student, quote unquote. Mm, okay, I got you. I got you. All right, so this is one year training, right? One year. One year training. So I'm assuming once you start getting into January, February, you should have already been like, you were at your point where you were interviewing. Or at least making oh, yeah, the final yeah. decisions. I, I had a, yeah, I had a job as of about January, yeah, beginning of January. Okay, and this job now, so the job that you're working right now, is this critical care and anesthesia? I couldn't remember from the beginning. What you? Yeah, yeah, I, I'm uh, 50-50, so I do uh, a week in the ICU and uh, every month, and then uh, two weeks in the operating rooms. Is this still the military, or are you just, this is? I'm out, I'm out. This is, okay. uh, I'm at a, a, a Moffitt Cancer Center. It's a okay. facility down in Tampa, Florida. Okay. Okay. So what's this like? What one week on? What's your work schedule like? It's, it's, uh, it's great. Right. So as I was transitioning out of fellowship, um, there was a, a, a huge pull for me to stay super high speed, you know, cutting edge, go to a place that had transplants and trauma and all these, you know, high acuity cases, because this is what I trained for. And then I kind of stumbled into this opportunity, which is at a large cancer center. It's a new endeavor where they opened a new hospital. They're building out their critical care program. The patient population is different from what I've usually worked with, which is why, like, back when I was in the medical ICU, I was like, let me learn a little bit more about oncology patients and onco intensive care. And the volume is a lot lower. The acuity is less. There's no OB. There's no trauma. There's no ER. So that was kind of the things that that pulled me. It felt bad to step away from the trauma because, like, on the south side of why? Chicago, I mean, we why? were saving. Why? We were, why you know, it's that, that? It's that pull because like you're, we're saving lives. Like every day mm-hmm. I go into work, man. There's young um, young brothers that are coming in, paralyzed, shot up, and they get to you know wake up and look at me taking care of them. And, and, and that was something special that it's hard to hurt, you know, it, it, the way it, it makes you feel like you're out there serving the community. Right. That was really hard to, to step away from. Um, but, you know, we're, we're closer to family. My wife, you know, didn't, she, she could see the things that I would go through at work and then come back and I'm tired and I'm stressed. And you like, bring oh, work she's like, home with you. It's so hard to, yeah. bring, to bring home work home with you, yo. She's, she's like, how was your day? And I'm like, oh, I mean, I don't really want to talk about it. I saw two people die. And like, I'm actually pretty good with compartmentalizing, but it's hard to to relate. And, and that was really stressful. So this this situation was great. She's happy. Um, I'm in better spirits. My schedule when I'm in the ICU is Monday through Sunday, um, 7 on, uh, or sorry, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Or if I'm on night, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Then I have a week off. And then uh, the last two weeks of the month, I would be in the operating rooms kind of Monday through Friday. And those days are like, you know, 6.30, get to the hospital at 6.30, set up for cases for the day, supervise two or three uh, rooms, and then finish in the afternoon, you know, three o'clock to five o'clock. You know, that that pool that you talked about being at a University of Chicago, seeing the trauma patients come through, the majority of those patients are going to be young. Um, they're going to look like you, um, particularly with the violence issue over there. That's real. And I think that I definitely went through something similar about 10 years ago. So I spent my training in Atlanta for Grady, and then I went down to University of Miami. So Knife yeah. and Gun Club of Atlanta to the Knife and Gun Club of Miami. And there was this decision that I had to make, like, did I want to continue at a level one trauma, high acuity, gunshot wounds, stab wounds, car accidents, all of those different things? Can I affect, is it best for me to affect the community in that way? Um, And am I selling out if I go into like a community-based trauma program? Um, And, you know, my heart told me to stay in that, like, you know, in that setting, you know, as a surgeon, like I directly can affect that, right? Um, or should I, can I affect in different ways? And, you know, for me, I think the biggest thing is when I did a medical mission trip and then Hmm. I started realizing that there's just other ways in which I can affect life. I can affect, um, you know, the way in which, you know, people's daily experiences are. And once I did a medical mission trip, that was it. I was hooked. And I decided that for me, it'd be a little bit easier if I was in a community-based program where I was in more control of my schedule, um, than being at that. But I I definitely feel what you're saying. and And I definitely understand that pull. Um, but yeah, I want to fast forward real quick to where you're at 
with your current job. And I'm actually very interested. So in terms of salary, right? So now you don't have to tell me exact numbers, but I'm assuming it's a lot more, it's a big difference between where you were in the military to where you're at now, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I was actually just, uh, I was late to this interview because I was with one of my former Navy buddies watching um, a football game and, and we were just kind of talking about life outside the service. I Yeah, I, I doubled my military salary easily. And it's, you know, I, I get paid kind of the average academic rate for an anesthesiologist. Um, but I do have a lot more time off. I have eight weeks of vacation. And with my ICU time, it's about a week off a month. But I still doubled my military salary. So talk to me about negotiating, because I think that's another thing that I think, think listeners on the show need to start hearing more of. Was there opportunities for you to negotiate a various amount of things? I think the number one thing that people always think about is your salary. Did you negotiate that or did you negotiate time off? Did you negotiate other things? What was like the priority when you came into, you know, looking at your contract? What did you decide to negotiate? Yeah, that, that's a tough one because everybody like talks about negotiations and it's like, you know, did you take just whatever deal was offered? For anesthesia, there's a lot of times not much wiggle room. Don't do it, Dr. Um, Steven. Don't say it. The, Come on, yo. The Dr. private Steve, don't groups. Do it. Come on. The <laughs> the private groups are starting to dry up. So yeah, you negotiated this amazing package, and you're on a partnership track. But you know, a year into that partnership track, your group's getting sold to a national corporation. Right. This stuff happens across the country um, at an alarming rate, and and like the market here in Tampa for private anesthesia gigs, it's 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 a mess. There's a lot of big national groups. Um, which they really don't negotiate. The locums market is incredible. You can definitely negotiate, but then you're moving around. Academic anesthesia. Not necessarily, but keep going up. Okay. Yeah, I'd mm-hmm. love to hear, hear that. You're the locums mm-hmm. uh, guru. Academic anesthesia is kind of set. They'll tell you what it is. It is and it isn't. But what, which university rate, is your school, what university is your hospital associated with? Uh, which currently? Yeah, your hospital. Isn't that a, like a, uh, its own hospital? Yeah, right now, so I took a private gig. It's like, a, it's, a, it's Moffitt Cancer Center, so it's affiliated with USF, but it's oh, its okay. own thing as a Moffitt medical group. Gotcha. Um, and, and the thing I like about their uh, structure is it's all a step system. So you're, you know, uh, assistant member, associate, and then full member kind of mirrors the assistant associate professor. And depending on your time and rank, that's your salary. So there's a little bit, it's a little bit more transparent. And what I ended up negotiating for was time and rank based upon my academic time. So I came in with a couple of years and I'm closer to making associate. So that was, that was my negotiation. But what I saw dealing with other academic programs and I I interviewed it, everything else was academic. I didn't think I interviewed at one uh, private practice. The academic programs were offering um, in the mid threes and they pretty much all were just going to start you off as an assistant professor. I didn't interview at like the Harvard's that start you off at like clinical instructor, but they were going to start you off as, you know, assistant professor and you have your four weeks of vacation and you have to negotiate for your protected time. Usually you work four days a week in academic anesthesia and you have like 10%, that's your 10% protected time. And you have to really fight for anything more than that. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of what was the blanket. And if, you, and if you really like an academic program, now you can negotiate. You can fight for your protected time. You got to show, what am I going to do research in? How are you going to recoup your investment? Um, and then the thing that, that I found out is a lot of these academic programs have these little like different funds, like endowments or something. Yeah. And if they really want you, they dip they into can, that money. Oh, yeah. Next mm-hmm. thing you know, it's another 30 grand, 50 oh, yeah. grand, 60 grand that they're going to supplement your salary with. And that's when I realized, like, so all these people that you may be working with at your academic facility that doesn't negotiate, look around at those professors. They're probably making a lot more than you than you think they are. But right. coming in, you know, they're not going to offer you that. No, no. So you, so you, okay, so what are the things that you negotiated then at your current spot? Uh, academic, uh, academic time. So all, or, or uh, time and rank, essentially. So what I should that mean? Uh, go be specific. For, what does that mean? Uh, so I'm an assistant member level three. Um, so I'm about like two years away from promoting to associate. 
Okay, so what's, because sometimes some people don't understand, I sometimes don't even know what that means. What's the difference in the associate versus assistant? Like, what does that mean? More yeah, time so, off? You have to write more books? Like, what does that mean? No, for, 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 my, for my gig, it's mostly salary, but at, at other academic places, um, it is like your time, your protected time for research. It's probably tied to your salary as well. Most places, yeah, you get a pay bump when you make associate and then again when you make a, a full professor. Um, but depending on the program, like the Ivy League will start you off as a clinical instructor, I've heard, for several years where you're not even an assistant professor. After a couple of years, you've earned your way to become an assistant professor through research or, you know, scholarly endeavors. And there's different time courses. So some places you're going to be an assistant for seven or eight years. Some places, like the place I'm at now, is essentially a five-year um, promotion scale, which is something else that I really liked about this program. Okay. And when you say protected time, that means the amount of time uh, in a calendar, let's say in a month, that is not related to what you do, putting people to sleep, doing stuff clinically. Like this is like protected time is so that you can do what? Research and right. administrative type BS, all those type of things, right? Yeah, yeah. A lot, of, a lot of places like for academic anesthesia jobs, you you only work typically four days a week and then there's right. your call. But that fifth day of the week, you depending on the department, they're going to want you in-house or available or you'd be on like a list to potentially cover if you're short because they kind of want to see you even though you're not really working. Like or some places like, and blocks and all that stuff. Well, yeah, some, sometimes, but the, you're, mm. you're technically non-clinical, but some places, depending on their staffing, will be able to like, okay, we're, we're going to pull you back for today, so we need you available. So that's something else as you're looking for jobs, like with your protected time, can I work from home? Can I just sit at home and write a paper? Or do you want me to come to campus for my quote-unquote protected time? What's the scoop of your job? Where you got What's be? that? Do you have to, can you be at home or you got to come in? Yeah. So my job, it, it depends. Like right now it's encouraged to be on site for the mm. protected time, but I don't at the moment have any protected time. I just have a ton of time off, um, between my off service weeks, which again, like I, I'm not expected to be you know on campus at all after my, uh, post ICU week and then, you know, my vacation time. So. Mm, okay. All right. So the question I want to ask you actually is um, now that, you know, you are like in your because now you've been out now we're talking about three months now, four months from fellowship. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Three months. So now that you're doing that, you're, you're kind of in the swing of things and so forth. Like I know that there's like this renewed effort for you to be more creative um, there's more creativity that's going into what you're putting out on social media. Take us through that story and then let's kind of lead into what's going on with your podcast and let us know more about that. Yeah. Um, the biggest thing is just time. I have my time back. So in the military towards the last like couple years I was in, I'd finished my boards. I had a ton of time to do it on the podcast to make music. And then I kind of had to hang that up when I went back for fellowship just because of the workload. There are some months that were lighter. I was on like a radiology elective and I had some time to create some music during my fellowship. But overall, you know, I was still an ICU fellowship. Now I just have a ton of time off because the job is, is very um, big on work-life balance, um, less stressful, lower acuity. So one, I have a lot more time to be in this creative space. And number two, you know, I, I am like, I'm hedging my best. I got, I got my boards coming up in October. So I am uh, studying for that a lot. So I'm like, not just like all in on the, on the music. <laughs> And podcasting, but you know, after October, I'm looking forward to really like uh, getting into music and and um, dropping. I'm working on a lo-fi channel. Um, that'll be the goal, you know, to, to get that up by the end of the year. Make sure I get the link for that because everybody, um, for me, lo-fi works for me. So, what exactly is lo-fi? So people know. Let us know what that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So lo-fi is like like lo-fi hip hop. It has a bunch of like ambient noises and sounds, and just, so low fidelity. So instead of like a very high fidelity music production where you have a bunch of instruments, lo-fi is often just like a, a pad, which is a kind of a soft synthesizer sound. You've got a very mellow, compressed drum beat. You've got a little bass line and a very simple uh, melody line. And, it, and it's a, they're slower songs, usually about 65 to 75 beats per minute. And people love it because usually they don't have lyrics. It's easy to study too. It's oh, yeah. very has a very relaxing, calming effect. I agree. Has a little bit of it doesn't yeah. put you to sleep. It doesn't put. You, it's just calm enough that you can focus, but it doesn't put you to sleep. 
and is not distracting. I love it. I love it. And I'm glad that you got into it. Yeah. So I, I, I that's that's my goal with with uh, the music. And of course, you know, getting some extra instruments now that I have a full salary. So look at you. You got money. Good now. time. Oh, yeah. You got money now. OK. OK. It's all right. <laughs> Now, what, what's up with the podcast? Tell us, uh, obviously, we know the podcast that you host, the very important, the Black Doctors podcast. What's new? What's coming up? What's coming down the, uh, the streamline? Man, it's a labor of love. So the podcast, we're in our third year. I say we, um, you know, I have uh, Nate Jones, my co-host, but uh, three years in, same thing. During fellowship, it was tough to be consistent. Like the very you last it month too hard, or two. Though. You make it too hard, though. That's the problem. <laughs> you make it too hard. You be trying to well, make these that, complex topics, bruh. Just let us know how you doing. That's it. Everybody, will, people will listen. But you, you go ahead. I'm, I'm gonna hold you. Go work, ahead. work in progress. Work in progress. Um, so it's been great, you know, having some time back. July was the relaunch, um, and be able to put more time in the production mm-hmm. quality, working on outsourcing different uh, aspects of the show and scaling the podcast. I actually uh, started a. A company or business or LLC, whatever it is, Equihealth Media Consultants. So, looking to be kind of a, a, a starter or incubator for other people that want a platform. Um, the music would also kind of fall under that LLC because it's communications related. But you know, hopefully, getting into some video production, some audio production, and just helping uh, take the work off of people that say, "I want to do." X, Y, and Z. I want to get this thought across and I want to help them do that. So the podcast is, is growing, uh, after October, after boards, it's, you know, hopefully really taking off mm-hmm. and then, um, bringing on some more people, maybe some interns to help with some of the production work and some of the topics and just get back to that root mission of presenting the stories of underrepresented and medicine, minority physicians, and with the goal of inspiring, uh, you know, those pre-meds and medical students. Excellent. I love it, man. I love it. It's a really good podcast. I encourage all of you all to take a listen to it. And um, I appreciate you like getting a little bit into like the micro of how much you get paid before you did this fellowship in the military, how much you getting paid as a resident. I did not know fellows was making that much, yo. Yo, it's been a minute. I got to no. go back. Yeah, yeah. I got to I got to plug back in. I got to I got to plug back in. Um, and then obviously the jump you know, to being a, um, an attending and doing all those things. And for me, I think it's really important to kind of understand like you as an attending, like what you negotiate, what you don't negotiate, what's important to you versus what's not important. And I think, um, you know, a lot of times, you know, we don't, we, we get enamored with the salary, but we don't necessarily talk about the things that are other deal breakers. And for me, I always tell people like, you always got to look at a contract to find out, you know, what's the most important way to get into the contract, right? How do you get into a contract? And then how do you get out of the contract? And then the other things that uh, retain your ability to say no, because I think that's the yeah. most powerful thing, more so than even salaries. It's like, yo, I'm going to say no if you ask me to take extra call and there shouldn't be any retribution for that. Um, but that's hard. And it's not and, for everybody. And, yeah. Now, I'll say briefly, yeah, one of the things that the green flags was that there's a lot of folks at this job that have been here for forever and are mm-hmm. just happy and relaxed. Like the, the the level of stress that I did not see and the people I interviewed with was like, okay, this, 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 is, a, this is a hidden uh, gem. Got you. Got you. All right, Dr. Steven, man, thank you for catching up. We'll catch you on, an, on maybe another episode where we can collaborate, all right? Absolutely. Always here for it.